having recently gone through all of the scriptures, and what a blessing it is to start all over and go to Genesis. Last week we looked at how Adam has blamed God and Eve for his sin. We know that scripture tells us Eve was deceived, but Adam, we're told in Timothy, Adam was not deceived. Eve being deceived sinned, Adam eyes wide open, fully knowingly sinned. Now we all look for loyalty. We look for loyalty in our families. We look for loyalties in our mates. We look for loyalty in our friends. We want our friends to be loyal to us. I expect you people to tell your friends what a great pastor you have. And don't be saying things like, unfortunately, he's the best that we could get. I don't, I don't, I don't like that kind of thing. And it may be true, but you don't have to spread it, you know. But we expect loyalty even from our pets, dogs in particular. Cats are so independent, they don't even know what loyalty is. So, but from our dogs, we expect loyalty. Moses, he's our black lab. Someone pulls up into the driveway, he will jump around. He will wag his tail. If they get out of the car, he'll lick their hands. You know what I'm saying? Moses is anything but loyal. Now think about, consider Adam created by God, perfect, no flaws, perfect in intelligence, perfect in his abilities, living in a perfect environment, has the perfect fitting call upon his life. Adam had to never go through what most of us go through. He, he didn't have to decide, is Eve the right one for me? Eve created from his side. She was the right one. His perfect helpmate. Adam never had to struggle with his vocation. Well, what am I called to do? I was 50 years old before I realized I was called to be a pastor. <laughs> Tells you a little bit about me. A little bit slow on the uptake, but here, here I am. You know, what can I say? But how many of us have bounced around in life before settling in on what we're doing today on our present careers? Adam never had to go through doubts of what he was supposed to do in life. That kind of takes an edge off. Adam never had to learn a profession. He never had to go to the right colleges. He never had to serve an internship. He didn't know what a training seminar was. Of all the people in the world, Adam 
should have been the most loving and loyal man towards his God ever. But Adam knowingly and purposefully sins. And then Adam has the audacity to blame God for his sin. That kind of character flaw, that kind of disloyalty, well, it's staggering. Adam had one prohibition in life. One, don't eat from the tree of knowledge in the center of the garden. That's it. Just one thing not to do. Adam not only eats, but then he blames God. Some have speculated that Adam fully realized the consequences of his sin before he ate and sinned. They believe that he considered how it would be to be separated from Eve if he did not eat. Perhaps he thought this through. And that being the case, Adam is then very quick to blame God and Eve for his moral failure. Adam did not have to make the excuses that he made. He could have said, God, you created Eve for me, my perfect helpmate, and I couldn't bear the thought of being separated from her, God, so I ate. But Adam doesn't say that, does he? What does Adam say? The woman you gave me, God, the one you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Blaming God. So this morning, let's read God's response to Adam. And so we pick it up in Genesis chapter 3, and we'll look at verse 13 through 16. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, and more than all, more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Adam made excuses why he sinned. Eve comes clean, she plainly states, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. If you're not careful here, you can just kind of glaze over that. But understand this. To be deceived as a Christian, as a believer, as God your Father, to be deceived is a sin. It's a sin. As a father, I want my children to be wise to the ways of the world without being part of the world. As a pastor, 
I want you people to be wise to those that would deceive you with schemes and teachings that are not biblical. And therefore, I sound like a mother hen sometimes. You know what? <laughs> I just do. One of my pet peeves, I detest being deceived. A deceiver, he will mix a little bit of untruth, a little bit of a lie with a lot of truth, therefore making it all untrue. And Eve was completely and fully deceived. And thus she ate. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, he has left the Temple Mount. They're probably over on uh, the Gethsemane area. And the disciples gather around him, pointing out how beautiful and how magnificent the temple buildings are. And the sun might have been setting on them. And, oh, look how beautiful they are, Jesus. And then let me read you Jesus' response to his disciples. And Jesus said to them, Do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now notice Jesus' words carefully. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. The disciples want to know when will the temple be torn down? And what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus then gives what we call an end times teaching. But notice Jesus' warning. Take heed. Be very careful that no one deceives you. And then Jesus repeats that in the next verse. For many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will deceive many. Deception happens to be Satan's specialty. For a Christian that should know God's word, being deceived is a sin. And now I'm not talking about buying a vacuum cleaner here, okay? Not one that can do everything in the world you want it to include cook your breakfast. You know, we're not talking vacuum cleaners. But we are talking about being deceived spiritually. We have God's word and we have the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. These two great God-given powers to keep deception away from us. We have no excuse to be deceived. The disciples came to Jesus one time and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And part of that prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, was pray that you be not led into temptation. And all temptation is, is a form of deception. 
sin never lives up to what you want it to be, that pleasure. It never lives up. And if it does live up, it only lives up for a short while. Sin has its day. It has its consequences. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, John tells us, Little children, let no one deceive you. And then we go back to the garden. And Eve is almost casual in her response to the Lord when she declares that the serpent deceived me and I ate. Like, it's okay, I was fooled. No, it isn't okay. Husbands, wives, we have each other to bounce questions off of. We have our helpmates. We are to balance each other. None of us knows it all. We don't know the perspective that we look at from other eyes. So it's always good to ask each other. The traits of a deceiver, they will always pressure you to make an instant decision. The last thing a deceiver wants to hear is, well, let me talk to my wife or let me talk to my husband. Worse yet, let me pray about it. They never want to hear that one. Let me pray about it. My mom... Uh, I can say bless her heart because she's died a few years back. <laughs> she had a lot of little sayings. One of her favorite ones was, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And that is so true. We are not to be deceived. And a deceiver, they always have a hook. They always have something they want. Satan wanted Eve to sin. Satan wanted God's creation to fall, to be separated from God. And that's why he came after Eve. And so what are some of the great deceptions that you and I hear? What are some of those things that fall across our ears that maybe we don't pay attention to? I think one of the great deceptions concerning salvation is I can turn to Christ anytime I want to. We've all heard people say, you're young, you've got a, a whole life in front of you. Live life a little bit. You know, you can always become a Christian later. When you're older, when, 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 you know, after you've sown those wild oats, you can then turn your life over to the Lord. Not true. Excuse me. In Hebrews we read, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So today is the day of salvation. No one, not any of us, have a guarantee of tomorrow. Therefore, salvation is for today. Back to Genesis. Now we hear the curse upon the serpent, or Satan. And notice God has absolutely no questions that he wants to ask Satan. He asks Eve. 
He didn't say to the serpent, Oh, my little snake, what made you sin? No. He knew. And there's a twofold curse that God pronounces upon the serpent. First, the serpent will have no legs to walk with like other animals do. The serpent must slither in the dust. There's something eerie about watching a snake just move across the ground. Out west, they have what they call sidewinders. They don't even go straight. They just kind of go sideways. And they make a distinct pattern in the desert sand when they go sideways. It's a little like comma marks. And you go, wow, oh, sidewinder made those. And you can notice the trail they leave. So it's a curse for the snake to slither on its stomach and eat dust. Adam and Eve, when they saw this curse that God pronounced upon the serpent, it probably scared them. This once beautiful creature, more cunning than all the other creatures, is now a detestable, slithering, hissing snake. I happen to hate snakes, can you tell? Adam and Eve, they're thinking, if God pronounced this curse upon the snake, what will our curse be? What is our fate? And that was probably a good question they're asking themselves. Secondly, there will be enmity or ill will and hatred between mankind and Satan. Man, in his natural state, is rebellious towards God. We can't deny that. But man in his natural state is also cautious and afraid of Satan. Satan, to encounter Satan, is a fearful thing. Our basic nature, our basic state of being is pro-self. It's the me first syndrome. Not God, not Satan. But me. And when anything new or strange happens to us, check yourself on this. Anytime something new comes up, what is your first thought, your first concern? How does this affect me? That's the way we're built, that's how we think. Enmity, though, is there between the seed of woman and Satan. And this is a very prophetic verse here. The seed of woman, notice this doesn't mention man there, the seed of woman, her offspring, will be of a virgin birth, because there's no mention of man there. So we have the seed of woman indicating a virgin birth. And then you have the bruising of the heel. It's Satan will strike at the heel or the feet of Messiah, but the bruising of Satan's head is a mortal defeat to him. 
How many of you saw the, well, you don't have to raise your hand or anything. Anyway, the movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. There is one scene I really like in that movie. And it's probably in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think that's where they try to bring you to. And it shows a little snake and all of a sudden you see a... <laughs> and it's Jesus stomping the head of the snake. And I go, yeah. <laughs> that's one of my favorite scenes in that whole movie. But anyway... When Jesus stomps the head of that small serpent, it tells us the fate of Satan. He will always be trying to strike at the feet of Jesus, but he's always defeated. And that is good news. We Christians share in the victory of Jesus over Satan. There's nothing to fear there. Satan may win a battle or two, but the victory belongs to Jesus. In Romans 16, 20, there's a great verse, and it's the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So we can rest in that verse. But way back in Genesis chapter 3, God knowing Adam and Eve would sin, he promises a victory for redeemed mankind. Being redeemed is far superior to innocence lost. What do I mean by that? Nothing can replace the joy of being saved, of being redeemed, having a righteous right standing with God. Nothing comes close to that. And if you're anything like, anything like me, I have longed for an environment uh, like Eden, you know, no weeds, everything was perfect, no corruption. But being saved, being redeemed is far greater than environment lost, innocence of man lost, because a redeemed person has greater love and appreciation for Christ than any perfect garden of Eden could ever give us. And maybe you're like me. I have longed for a perfect environment where there was no sin. And so, when you think on that, one of the reasons we as Christians try to evangelize the world is we want everyone to enjoy the times of refreshing that come by being redeemed. We want everyone to experience the joy of knowing God up close and personal. Then we have verse 16. And this verse is a very bold, upfront verse. Let me reread verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Let me say this. I have heard this verse taught on many times. 
I have heard good exposition of this verse, and I have heard what I call very poor exposition of this verse. This verse says what it says. Let it fall where it will fall. I will not try to soften this verse. In Christian societies, nations have given women more dignity, more rights than any other culture. Christianity is almost solely responsible for elevating the woman. In almost all other religions around the world, the lot of women is barely above cattle. It's just the way it is. And you don't have to look far or hard to see that. Now, Christianity is not perfect. The church is not perfect because the church is made up of people like you and I, and we're not perfect. But comparatively speaking, Christianity has brought much dignity to women. The first curse pronounced by God is a broad curse. Women will experience pain regarding their children, not only in childbirth, but in many ways. You know, your child hurts, you hurt. And that's part of the curse. But for a woman to give birth, it is more painful, I'm told, <laughs> than it is for any other creature that gives birth. For a woman to give birth is very painful. Is this true, Rebecca? <laughs> Rebecca's close. <laughs> God did he declares though, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that's a little difficult for some women to take. For many women realize I'm more organized, I'm smarter, I'm more talented than my husband. And that's just the way it is. But ladies, know that your desire is for your husband. Your desire is for him. Your women are cursed with trying to please and rule over your husbands all at the same time. And you can't hardly do that. God has not said this of men. He has said this of women. Now we men, we husbands are prone to make decisions. And our basic thinking is live with it. I made the decision, you know. You ladies make a decision, and then you want to justify that decision, wanting it to be pleasing to your husbands. And of course, you know it's the best thing for him. But not in God's order of things. In Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and in Colossians also, he declares, husbands, love your wives. Have you ever noticed that that command is not given to women or to wives? 
because the woman's love, the wife's love for her husband, it's apparent. It's self-evident. God does not even bother to tell a woman to love her husband because she already does. But wives, you are commanded to respect and submit to your husbands. And therein lies the rub. (laughs) There's where the plot thickens. Women, you have a natural basic desire, according to Scripture, to rule over your husbands. So a woman to submit goes against the grain, especially against the grain of a woman that is not a believer. And it goes all the way back to Eve. The desire of women to rule over their husband is the same word that is used in Genesis 4-7 where God says, sin lies at your door and desires to rule over you, Cain. Same desire word there. And this is not a good desire for sin or for women. Let me say this. In my limited experiences, and they are limited, when I see a godly woman that is able to submit to a lesser man because it is the will of God, I want to take my hat off and salute that woman. For that's a godly thing. A godly wife is a great blessing. A submitting Christian wife is not only a good thing to her husband, she is beautiful to her Lord. But in the natural, a woman has to suppress that urge to rule over their husband according to God's word. We men, we don't always help the matter because many times we make foolish and selfish decisions regarding our families, regarding our wives. Men, we are to love our wives, we're told to love our wives, and we're to make wise and loving decisions. God tells us to do that. This happens to be the same principle God wants in his church. Men are to lead. It's God's plan. And that is not always the case in today's world. Recently, like two weeks ago, I went to a prayer breakfast of local pastors and church leaders. You know, they email you and try to make you feel guilty if you don't go, so I went. The intent of this prayer breakfast, this meeting, was for us as church leaders to organize and pray for our community. What could be wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. And so I get there, and I begin to count noses. Can't help myself, okay? Ten women church leaders, seven men. Hmm. 
The woman who organized this meeting was kind enough to buy us breakfast. And the meeting went on for an hour and a half. And I have to say that this woman rambled on and on and on. It was billed as a prayer breakfast. And for an hour and a half, there was perhaps maybe five minutes of prayer. That leaves an hour and 25 minutes of her rambling. And it was tough. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, what a waste of time. Why aren't we praying? You know, that kind of thing. And I asked the fellow who went with me, I said, do I ramble on like that? Please tell me I don't. He chuckled, and I hope that chuckle meant he that I don't ramble on, okay? He didn't say I didn't. He just... <laughs> but in God's plan, leadership of families and his church can and does oftentimes put men and women at odds with each other. Especially if it's not done in God's way. I have to say this in all truthfulness. That over my years as a Christian, and I've been a Christian most of my life, and I'm, now I'm an old man. I have seen great disharmony and struggles in homes where the wife is domineering and leads the family. There are many unhappy marriages when a wife rules and runs the family. And many times the husband won't lead, he won't rule, and he allows his wife to take that position of responsibility that should never be hers because it's the easiest way for him. Ah, I'll just go to work and do whatever and bring home and let her take control. But men, the bottom line is this, the responsibility of the home and of God's church falls on the shoulders of men like it or not. We can't pardon our way out of it. It's God's order. And I make no apologies for his order. Let me get you to stand and we'll pray. Father God, I thank you for your word, for your word is truth. Your word is real. And Lord, any of us would be wise to submit to your word, and we want to do that. So Lord, by your spirit, by your grace, give us hearts that are obedient to your word. Lord, you tell us that uh, in your eyes there is neither male nor female, meaning that no one is superior to the other. And we accept that. But Lord, I pray for us as men to take the responsibility 
of being godly fathers, of being godly husbands. And Lord, we want to be good leaders of your church, for your church is special to you, Lord. So help us. And Lord, we pray for the women, pray that they will be godly women and that they would submit unto you, Lord, not unto us necessarily, but unto you, for it's pleasing to you when a woman does submit to you. And Lord, we all want to submit to you in everything that we do. We want to let you call the shots. We want to let you be our Lord and God. So give us wisdom. Give us hearts that are obedient. As Lord, as we try to live out your word in our daily lives, be with us. And we pray for this. And we ask for this in your name, Jesus. Amen.